Okay, everybody, we'll go ahead and get us started with the offshore wind um, presentations and panel. My name is Turner Holm. I'm head of research at uh, Clarkson Securities, part of uh, the larger Clarkson's group, uh, the heart of global shipping, we call ourselves. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess uh, very happy to be here to talk about offshore wind today, uh, joined by some esteemed um, co-panelists uh, and presenters. Carl Eric is from uh, Anetti. Uh, on the operational side, I guess. James Jewell is uh, investor relations from also from NA. And uh, Greg Wasikowski is from, from Mobile Research. So um, I guess yeah, on the agenda, I'm going to have a quick presentation. Uh, Greg is going to step up, do the same, and uh, same from Anetti, and then we'll have uh, a little discussion. So with that, I'll kick it off. I mean, I'm very happy to talk about offshore wind. Um, it's uh, something that is a bit close to my heart, and I mean, it couldn't be a better time to talk about it, just given the ongoing energy crisis, right? So I, I sit in also, um, and uh, you know, every day the headlines in Europe are really all about the energy crisis, which has just seemed to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, and you know, at least in Norway, all the headlines are about high power prices, uh, and I think you'd see the same thing um, across uh, European media. So. Um, Politicians are responding to this, and here you see it on the graph. Uh, offshore wind is uh, is a source of domestic energy. Does not rely on imports uh, like gas, coal, oil, etc. Um, wind turbines are produced in Europe, uh, unlike solar panels, where 80, 90 percent of them come from China. So it is the most uh, let's say, energy-independent source of power uh, that, that Europe is producing. And therefore, politicians um, are very happy to get behind it. And you see that in the targets. So this year has just been uh, an acceleration of the targets that we've seen from, from these countries. And I, I mean, you know, politicians' targets are not something that you necessarily place a lot of uh, weight on um, as a financial person or as an economist. But actually, if you look at the history of these targets, they've typically been exceeded. So I think that there's a lot of uh, credibility. Um, so we see UK uh, today has 12 gigawatts going to 50 by the end of the decade. Germany has seven going to 30. Uh, you look at the Netherlands has uh, mid single digits going to 20 by the end of the decade. I mean, the growth is uh, exponential. Um, and as a result of that, what you see is that the number of turbines that are going in the water, these are our estimates here on the right-hand side in the red, uh, is expected to rapidly increase in the next coming years. Um, so this is, you know, largely, a lot of it's Europe, um, but also North America. I mean, we're going from, uh, what do we have, eight turbines in the water in the United States? We'll have several thousand by the end of the decade, and it's starting right here. Uh, so next year uh, in Massachusetts, we'll see the first big project go off offshore. So um, I think one other thing before I move on that uh, just on the macro level is like offshore wind is not expensive. Um, it's, uh, it's cheap. So if you look in the most recent auctions, people basically, developers bid in uh, to provide power, typically against long-term offtake contra uh, contracts from governments. Uh, in the latest round in the UK, the bids were around 40 pounds per megawatt hour. I uh, just looked at the futures market in the UK. For next year, the power price is 473. So uh, power prices are more than 10 times next year uh, what the, well, 12 times actually, uh, what the break-even costs are, including equity returns. So, you know, you could say, okay, gas prices are high. Uh, those prices will come down over time. Fine, but 
this is some of the cheapest power in the grid, and it's also some of the most reliable. So uh, it's 50%, 60% capacity. Utilization versus solar is like 20, right? So offshore wind is, um, is cheap. Um, politicians love it. It doesn't have permitting problems in the same way that, say, onshore wind does. So this is something that politicians like. The economics makes sense. It's great, yeah? Um, the biggest challenge when it comes to offshore wind is not uh, economics in the sense of, you know, costs of the electricity versus what they can sell it for. It's really supply chain, right? It's responding to this uh, extraordinary situation and extraordinary expectations for, for growth through the end of the decade and trying to design a supply supply chain that works for it. Um, and that's true for vessels, which we'll focus on today, but it's also true for every single other part of the value chain in offshore wind. It's true for turbines. It's true for foundations. It's true for every component that goes into an offshore wind farm. Um, and I think that many of you have probably seen headlines and lots of press releases about new orders. And I think, you know, you get the question from time to time, oh, is this going to be like uh, deep water drilling rigs back in, you know, 2012, 2013, and this is going to come crashing down? Well, uh, there's a lot of differences. I mean, I think um, one is that you have to remember uh, that the turbines that we're installing now are, uh, or in the, the years to come, are just a completely different scale than what we've been putting in the water. The turbines are now the size of the Chrysler building, and you're going to put 100, 150 of them in the water. You need big boats to be able to do this. So uh, you look at the existing fleet of turbine insulation vessels, it's about 15, and you have a big order book, right? I mean, I think that uh, it jumps out. It's 13 new builds um, that we consider credible. Uh, so you get to, you know, a pretty big fleet growth number. But the reality is, is that when you start adjusting for uh, the size of the crane, you have to have a big crane to lift something the size of the Chrysler building. We start adjusting for uh, how tall that turbine is, right? Um, actually, you're not seeing nearly as much growth. It's still significant compared to the existing fleet. But then you start looking at efficiency, right? Because these are transport vessels. They're not only installation vessels. So you actually have to put the turbine on the vessel, bring it out to the offshore wind site. And if you can't carry many turbines, well, then it's going to go really slow. So um, we've adjusted for some efficiency there as well. And so by the time that you make all those adjustments, uh, it's as far as we see it, the fleet isn't actually growing at all, despite those that rapid growth in, in turbines that's expected in the years ahead. Um, so you can also look at it another way, right? I mean, you can look at that order book and you can get a little scared, but um, I think you also have to understand like the way this business works. So you, the way that what the vessels actually do. So they install turbines, but they also install foundations. Yeah? Uh, so every turbine needs a foundation to sit on. Uh, if you look at the turbine fleet, it looks like it's growing a lot, yeah, because that's where a lot of the orders are going. If you look at the foundation vessels, it's barely growing, and actually, you dig into that fleet, and two-thirds of the foundation vessels are from oil and gas. And given where oil and gas prices are, uh, and given the fact that these vessels are designed for that market and can get paid better in that market, we think a lot of those will migrate back. So I think, you know, in its totality, it, it really doesn't look like there's that much fleet growth, even if you don't start adjusting for turbine sizes, et cetera. So here, we, we do a quick exercise, including the foundation vessels, because I'm sure Carl Eric can confirm a lot of the vessels that, uh, sorry, a lot of the assets they're putting in the water are actually foundations. Um, so you get a total fleet, including both vessels, uh, vessel classes. Think about, think about this like VLCCs and Suez Maxis, right? You can't really just look at VLCCs. You have to look at the larger tank fleet. 
Um, you throw in uh, order books, yeah, then you get that growth. It's less than the near doubling than what you would think from just the WTIVs. Um, but then, you know, you can adjust for oil and gas, and even not adjusting for any efficiency, any upgrades, anything like that, the, the growth that we see is, uh, is nothing compared to the turbine installations, right? We're looking at 2.5x uh, over the next four years in terms of turbine installations. So I think I'll round off my comments with that, which is that uh, offshore wind is uh, cheap, it's popular, um, governments are willing to provide the offtake. It's not you're not selling oil into a spot market. You're selling power on a 15-year contract with a AAA sovereign, um, and the financing is there. It's really about these guys here. It's about the supply chain. Um, there's not enough, uh, and uh, I think that means uh, set up to make some money. Can you put on the Weber research presentation, please? Oh, there it is. All right. Uh, thanks, Turner. Um, I want to start by, by thanking uh, Nicholas and the Capital Link team for having me up here. Um, I remember my, my first few days in the industry. This was my first conference and, and sitting out there uh, frantically scribbling down every word that everyone at the podium said, thinking that every word was incredibly important. Uh, and now I'm the one at the podium, and I can tell you that that's absolutely not true. So, uh, seriously, thank you, thank you to the Capital team for for having me up here. It's great. Uh, so, there we go. Uh, my name is Greg Wazikowski, uh, senior analyst and head of research at Weber Research and Advisory. Uh, we're an independent sell-side equity research and advisory firm. We do traditional equity and industry research. Uh, it's pretty familiar to the sell-side world. Uh, we also do um, the energy engineering and, and technical consulting that I can assure you looks nothing like the traditional sell-side work, uh, but in a good way. Um, we also do a lot of interesting stuff on the advisory and consulting side of the business, uh, which is actually where Mike Weber, if, for those of you who know him, now spends the majority of his time. Uh, we cover about 20 companies in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, we follow a couple hundred more across energy, uh, really focusing on renewable energy, clean tech, LNG, and shipping. Uh, I spend the, personally, I spend the majority of my time on the left side of the screen there. Uh, I, I like to say that we really go where our clients lead us, and the past few years that's really been into renewables, clean tech as a whole, uh, specifically into hydrogen and other alternative fuels as well as EVs and EV charging. Uh, we do cover TPI composites, ticker, TP, ticker TPIC, uh, which is a, a wind blade manufacturer uh, with plans to move into the offshore space, which has prompted our attention as well as our clients' attention into offshore wind development. So I thought I would quickly cover a, a few of our key takeaways on offshore wind uh, through that process as well as some of our key points and takeaways about renewable energy space as a whole, kind of making that transition. Um, first, these charts uh, and the charts I'm sure you'll see in, in Eddie's presentation as well as uh, you know, pretty much any, any metric that you look up, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, the, the demand for low carbon and low cost energy is driving offshore wind. Uh, what might not be as clear is 
the lumpiness associated with that growth. So you see in the bottom right-hand forecast, the two, two pretty well-known uh, forecasts, and what you can notice is not only are they very different, uh, but they don't have that upward slope that you might expect to see with uh, you know, a high-growth industry. Um, that, for me, that gets exacerbated by you know, the, the high capital-intensive nature of this business. You know, when you, when you combine those two aspects, you likely get an industry that's led by giants with a wealth of experience and deep pockets. Uh, you know, it's not something that we necessarily see through the rest of our renewables coverage, but uh, can certainly see it here. And, you know, lastly, combining all those factors, what you get is the number of pure plays are limited. Finding an investable name on a U.S. exchange with enough tr daily trading volume can definitely be challenging. Uh, which tends to introduce a degree of scarcity value for the names that fit that criteria or tend to come close. Um, that's something that we tend to see in you know, our other renewables verticals as well. It kind of brings me into uh, the key points on, on really transitioning from you know, cutting my teeth in, in shipping and, and moving over to the renewables world. Um, the space moves incredibly quickly. You know, it's not just the companies themselves, but their stock prices as well. Uh, many of you might be familiar with Plug Power. It's a company that we cover. Uh, when we started covering them, they were a couple billion in cap with just a lot of ambitious growth plans. Within 12 months, they exited the year at 35 billion in cap and enough balance sheet to cover all of those ambitious growth plans and more. Um, so it just, you know, the space as a whole really tends to move quickly. Two, valuation is a concept. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you can basically throw your NAVs out the window and, you know, it, think of it as in a different sense. Uh, a lot of companies we cover trade off of FY4 sales multiples. Um, you heard that right, FY4 sales multiples. Um, you know, for example, if we attributed the same multiple to Frontline that Ballard Power regularly gets, Frontline would be trading somewhere between $65 and $130 a share. Uh, so the valuation multiples are, are pretty crazy in the renewables land. Um, with that rapid growth, um, you know, it can kind of be ironic with the companies. And what I mean by that is you know, many companies in our coverage actually de-emphasize or straight up ignore margin uh, in order to further boost revenues and market share gains. And it's basically a land grab and you know, worrying about margin at a later point, which is interesting. Um, and that tends to... Uh, come to frustration to investors. So, you know, a, a word uh, of advice that we typically have to our investors is um, you know, patience is key. Uh, these companies, some of them trade off of FY4 multiples for a reason, and, you know, they're not expected to hit their stride until 2025 or 2026. Um, they're very open about it, but they still have to answer to all these quarterly earnings calls, and it can get, can get frustrating to have that, um, you know, relative disappointment every, every quarterly earnings call waiting for you know, 2025 and 2026 to come about. Um, with that being said, one of the, one of the most effective uh, strategies that, that we've noticed from our clients is to basically you know, look past the rising tide. So it's you know, the phrase that the rising tide lifts all boats, but uh, you know, really what, what I found people to be successful in the space is kind of looking past that tide, looking at, at what business models and what companies are really set up to succeed in you know, the late 2020s into the 2030s when you know, some of the, the government support and tax credits maybe start to, to dwindle away. You know, who's, who's set up for success uh, in that sense? Um, that's something that we've thought to be a particularly thoughtful approach. 
so that's that's it for me. I'll end it there, and uh, happy to connect about it or any or all of it after the panel. But I think I'll, I'll turn it over to James. We'll uh, go to the Anetti presentation now. Great, uh, great job, Greg and Turner. I'm James Doyle. I'm the head of corporate development and IR at Anetti. Uh, with me is Carl Eric, a managing director at Anetti, who works on our projects, operations, and technical. Um, so you guys did a great job highlighting why we were investing in offshore wind uh, to begin with, especially as a company that's more focused on maritime. This is a little bit more maritime plus engineering. But when we looked at offshore wind, we saw uh, a tremendous build-out that Turner highlighted and uh, a, a relatively short supply, despite additional new building orders coming out. Um, I'm not going to re-hit the market slides that these guys covered, but I'm just going to talk about what we've done at Anetti for a few minutes before I pass to Carl Eric. And we've added a fair bit of contractual backlog, so about $180 million since uh, the start of the year. And when we looked at offshore wind, we decided to first order our own vessel, uh, given the supply-demand outlook that would deliver in 2024. And then we had to figure out how we are going to operate this vessel in what is uh, a small market that needs basically a significant track record, as Turner mentioned, with these large uh, infrastructure projects. And the developers don't want to take risk. So we spent a great deal of time uh, acquiring CJAX, which uh, owned five vessels, had a, a great track record, uh, one of the most advanced uh, WTIVs on the water, and we did that last summer. Um, and since then, um, we've been in the process of improving the quality of our, our investment, especially to the public, but also uh, internally trying to get the best operating results, most transparency we can in an industry that's relatively opaque and, and has a lot of private players. So the first thing we did is we paid off uh, the majority of CJX debt, uh, and then we got a new loan facility, a $175 million green loan facility uh, with a revolver component and multinational kind of currency uh, capabilities. Uh, we increased the contractual backlog. We ordered our second new building, uh, which we had an option for, for $323 million. And then we've spent the next several months really working on contracting our new building assets, which Carl Eric will speak to a little bit. We've divested from our investment in Scorpio tankers, and we've just declared our three smallest assets uh, as non-core for a potential sale as they while they work in, in offshore wind, they also work in oil and gas. So we've done quite a bit over the last 12 months. We've made a lot of progress. And um, with that, I will talk to, we'll pass to Carl Eric, and he can walk you through um, how we're thinking about offshore wind. Thank you, James. Uh, good morning, all. Um, my name is Carl Eric Gurik. I'm a managing director in Eneti. Uh, I'm Norwegian. Nobody's perfect, right? So, um, I actually started in this uh, space 11 years ago, at, in 2011. Um, I've seen turbines grow from three, three megawatt sizes to seven, seven megawatt sizes during five years. And now we see the sizes even doubling within the next five years. We've taken 
taking delivery of a couple of new buildings that are currently on the water that has their crane upgraded. And when we took delivery of those vessels, we, we upgraded the legs the, and the cranes just three years after delivery because the size of the turbines were so large so they couldn't handle the sizes anymore. I actually been a part of installing the first turbines in the US in Block Island, consisting of five, five GE turbines in, back in 2016. And when I started in, in this space in 2011, there was an extremely tight market. Um, there were so many, um, yeah, an extremely tight market. But I have actually never ever seen um, a, a larger imbalance between supply and demand that we are seeing uh, ahead of us now. Um, so um, I think what, we, what I would like for you to take away from today is there is this big bottleneck, as Turner alluded to, in the supply chain, but, but we see it obviously on the vessel supply side. And the other thing is that Eneti, as a company with, with the fleet on the waters and new buildings coming into the space, we are well positioned to, to enable and take care of that bottleneck and well positioned for looking further ahead throughout this decade and, and even further with the, the existing vessels and also the vessels that are coming online. So, I mean, these vessels, they are not, uh, are not basically a major part of the total construction cost. 2% of the installation, 2% of the construction cost in an offshore wind farm is related to wind turbine installation vessels. So, um, and these vessels are getting larger, and the cranes are, and, and the existing fleet does not cap are not capable of lifting these turbines high enough, and, 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 and with heavy components as we see coming into the market in 2023 and 2024. Um, secondly, as Turner says, for every, for every turbine that goes into the water, there needs to be a foundation standing there. You need to build the, foundation, the turbine onto a foundation. So with the new buildings that we have, with the cranes and the crane sizes that we have chosen, we would be capable of both handling the foundation installation market and the wind turbine installation market. And, this, and the fourth point I would like to mention is, in fact, the barrier to entry. Everybody, you, in shipping, you could say, well, we could just build more vessels. And we, we try that. As James said, we we've placed our first new building order in May last year. Uh, but we were really hammering on customers' doors. And they said, well, do you have the experience? Yeah, we have experience. We have product tankers. We have 180 product tankers. We have 55 boat carriers. So we have maritime experience. And they said, well, that's not enough because you need references. You need experience in this space. And that's why we acquired CJAX. And that's why we think that we are extremely well positioned with the existing fleet and the, and the new builds. Yeah, and, and the last but not least, when I started in this space, it was all Europe, right? It was Germany, it was Denmark, and, and the UK. And CJAX, which was one of, my, one of our, my main competitors back then, were taking a lot of orders. But now, the market is turning three-dimensional in a way. 
you have a big demand in Europe, you have an increasingly amount demand in the APAC region, and you also see the 30 by 30 vision here in the US with, with, with the offshore wind really is coming into play for the next decade. So we are positioned in all those markets. We obviously, we have been operating these vessels since 2009 um, and, and, and installed more than, yeah, almost 600 turbines accumulated 2.5 gigawatt, gig, uh, gigawatt installed capacity. We have installed almost 500 foundations in the water today. And we have, uh, we, are, we, are, we are becoming a global leader in a way. So we are having our current vessels, uh, two biggest vessels in, in Asia at the time. And the Saratan is, is working in Japan and the Skilla is working in Taiwan. And now uh, we are taking at least the, the, the biggest one out of uh, Taiwan and going back to Europe. And that's, that's like a 70 days journey and probably a, a $20 million of, of accumulated cost in, in transit and day rate equivalent. So it's a lot of money to mobilize one vessel to one part of the world to, to another. Um, and, and the developers that are developing these projects, they want to see wh which vessels are where. And as, as Turner and everyone, as some else are, have said, it's a very transparent market. It's a uh, very few vessels. You can actually uh, you can actually watch them and, and see where they are at, at some point in time, and you can see by announcement where they are um, and, and when they are committed and when they are not committed. So I think for us. Um, you could say, well, why are, why are, and you probably could see that NFT, we haven't committed our new buildings yet. And why is that? Well, that is because we believe that the market is going up because there is a huge bottleneck. So we are, want to wait and see until we have the right pipeline and the right utilization for these vessels, wherever they, it may be. So we have this wonderful partnership with, Glo with Dominion Energy in the U.S. We are a consultant to Dominion Energy, where we are actually, uh, together with Dominion, responsible for constructing the first jack-up or wind turbine installation vessels down at Keppel Amphils in Brownsville. So we have the, the new building supervision team down there. We are setting up the operations for Dominion for, for this vessel going to be delivered in 2023. Asia, we have talked about, and Europe uh, is obviously with the, with the Baltics now coming online, UK, Denmark, Germany, France, and everyone. So, so this is a really promising market, and, and we believe that we are leading all, in all those markets based upon our experience and based upon the presence in, in all of these global markets. Yeah, the track record speaks for itself. Um, the company has been around since 20, uh, 2009 uh, with five vessels on water. And, and you might think, well, the turbines are getting bigger, but uh, so these vessels need to be, to be upgraded. Yeah, that, that's correct. Some two of these vessels, the, the largest one, they, they at a certain point in time need to be upgraded. But in this market, they don't because there are constantly requirements for different types of work in the offshore wind space. We can upgrade both of the largest vessels. We can actually put on the largest crane that we have on the new buildings on the largest vessels currently on water. So, so these vessels are capable of being in the market for several, several years to come. So we have 400 employees, 300 excellent seafarers, and 100 people in the office um, worldwide. Um, 
and we have overseen construction of our five vessels on water. And, and with the Scorpio history, we have taken 180 new buildings out of Korea. So we, when we as a company decided to enter into this space, we were, wanted to, to lower the risk. So what did we do? Well, we choose the best and most capable designer of these vessels, Gusto. We choose the best and capable crane manufacturer in Hoisman. And obviously, with our experience, we, we more or less the first day said, well, we want to build in Korea because that's where, that's where we know our stuff and, and we, 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 um, we rely on them. And we're working for all these uh, major uh, developers, and, and these are some of the references that we have, uh, have now, and, and we're working on towards 2023. And as you saw from the charts earlier, we, we thought with our new buildings coming into the water in 2024 and 2025 that we would hit the target straight away, but we see that this increasing demand even further than that. So we actually committed our vessels in 2023, uh, one and a half year ahead of, of, of that calendar year. So we're basically fully booked during the, the first, uh, during 2023. So what the new buildings, yeah, they are vessels. They have a large crane, 2,600 ton, um, a, a very large deck space to carry components, both turbines and, and, uh, and foundations, as I said. Uh, they have uh, they, uh, kind of peculiar vessels in a way. They have long legs. We jack the legs down into the soil, and then we jack the vessel out of the water so we have fixed ground to stand on while we are building these turbines as we speak. And when we're finished, we jack down, move to the next location, and do the same, same cycle. Um, so it's about carrying capacity, and it's about, as Turner said, it's about lifting capacity, having lifting and a cell 225 meters above water at the weight of a thousand ton. That, that's precision work, right? So you need to have capable vessel and you need to have vessels that has a reserve so they are able to, when the new turbines are coming into play in 2030, and we believe that they will because we don't see that this will, this will stop, at least not yet. We are built in reserve in these vessels. We are capable of taking the next platform of, of wind turbines coming into the space. Obviously, uh, environment is extremely important to us. We are running on marine uh, gas oil, but we are also uh, ready to burn ammonia and, or LNG uh, if the market wants us to. We have a battery capacity on these vessels that are, where the vessels are capable of, of uh, operating on, on electricity while at port and also capable of running on batteries uh, during uh, operations uh, out in the field. And this, all of this will basically reduce the, the CO2 emissions from, from 31% down to, uh, down to um, 80% reduction. So there are a lot of technology innovations in the market today, and that will also increase going forward. So that is the story that we wanted to tell you. So bottleneck, yes, definitely. Uh, we see a very big bottleneck, both in the foundation installation market and the turbine installation market. Um, and obviously our positioning in that market with the capable vessels we have on water today and, and the new buildings that are coming into the space in a couple of years' time. So with that, yeah, I think uh, we'll, Q Q &A. we'll open up for Q&As. Thank you.
could you uh, could you comment on your strategy for the for the U.S. market? So for, this is for Anetti. For Anetti, so we paused uh, our progress with with the U.S. market. We needed three things: a shipbuilding contract, uh, which we were going to do at Brownsville in Texas, uh, the same as Dominion; a U.S. partner to have the majority ownership to comply with the Jones Act, and we needed customer contracts. Uh, Carl Eric made a great deal of progress on the contractual side of the business. Uh, typically, in, in, in this segment, you see kind of eight to twelve month contracts, and then the vessel goes on a another contract, sometimes with a different developer, sometimes with the same one, but not a multi year charter. Um, and we made some progress in getting that. Um, we worked with different uh, potential investors for the, the financing and partnership. What ultimately happened is we ran out of time. And given the significant cost of, uh, of WTIV in the U.S., around potentially over $500 million, and missing or not being able to meet our first contract, we ran out of time. And so now you basically have to look at the feeder barge solution and an international WTIV to meet those projects that do have a 2025 or 2026 start date. Can I, just make, can I just make a comment? Um, one thing that you guys didn't didn't mention, um, but I think that the audience would be interested to know, is that um, the stock's trading at half and half. Yeah. I mean, uh, so we have a $16.80 NOF. It's below $17. Bucks. Um, the stock's at $8. Um, and I think that, okay, you know, we've seen shipping stocks that trade below NAV before, but that's typically in markets where the rates are depressed. The rates are crap. I mean, I was listening to the container panel earlier. Like, you know, they're, they're saying they're trading below NAV. I guess that's a consensus in many cases. But that, that market is, you know, the, the spot rates are collapsing. Right here, it's 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 the opposite. Right, the, the spot rates are going up. Um, and as Carl or Eric pointed out, I mean, you have some of the few available vessels uh, for these projects that are coming up in 24 and, and 25. Um, you don't have any balance sheet issues. Uh, balance sheets fully financed. Been buying back shares at half of NAV. Um, what you bought back about six percent of the cap recently, and then just did an authorization for another fifteen percent of the cap. Um, Market's good, balance sheet's good, trading half and half, buying back shares. I mean, I, I, I frankly, I think it's, uh, I, I used in one of my research notes a word that I've never used before in any research note. I think it's absurd. Uh, and I think that it's um, just a function of that, um, you know, company's been under transformation. Um, it was a ship-owning business, right? It was in dry bulk. And I think it just takes people a while to, to figure it out, but... I just think it's one of those opportunities that doesn't come along very often and that um, and that uh, people should uh, take notice. I have the, I have a question back here. Um, Turner, uh, based on your presentation, the number of turbines, large turbines, that are going to be installed on an annual basis is going to quadruple over the next several years, right? Something like that, yeah. Right. And the effective capacity to install these things isn't going to change much. So unless utilization of Carl Eric and other people's fleet is capable of keeping pace with that growth, then um, the installations can't happen, can they? So uh, what, what do I mean? It's either a fantastic 
uh, scenario in which um, installations will be pushed out for a number of years and developers may be unhappy or they may be happy because they get to rebid because I'm sure they have a tremendous amount of remorse now given you know competitive costs of electrical generation and, and the supply chain costs. Or um, uh, Carl Eric's going to find a way to utilize his vessels and his his uh, compatriots are going to do the same. So what is it? Because there seems to be either a great you, you hit the nail on the head. something that's going to yeah. I mean, it's itself. That's it. Right? I mean, uh, you know, that number is based on projects that we look at and build it out. It's like developers, Erstead, big utility companies, Equinor, BP, Total, the big oil companies as well, who are throwing money at this business, by the way, um, from their record cash flows. Uh, that's, a, that's what they want to do, right? So we kind of build that up. We look at the, the projects that they have. All right, what they're saying, they want to build this offshore wind farm in Germany or the U.S. or the U.K. or what have you. Um, and then we kind of build up the demand that way. But like you said, it's, it's the bottom line. I mean, I, I'm, I go to a lot of these offshore wind conferences. I know a lot of people in the industry. I cover a lot of stocks in space. And everybody says the same thing, right? It's the same thing. It's the, it's the supply chain. Uh, it's, it's just not scaled up. To, to be able to deliver that, right? So if it doesn't happen, it's because the supply chain is running at full speed. But if you're an investor, right? Like Carl X said, it's 2% of the CapEx, right? Like, it, 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 it's like you pay up to get that vessel. You pay up to get it down, to get it done, right? And if you're a developer and you're building an offshore wind farm, right, that's going to deliver power and you have to deliver it by a certain date to get that offtake with the government, Right, like you have to deliver it. You go get the vessel. You pay what you need to do. So, you know, if those estimates overshoot, right, like like if it ends up lower than that, you know, it's because the supply chain wasn't able to keep up. And if the supply chain isn't able to keep up, then these guys are sitting in the catbird seat, as we say in Tennessee, where I'm from. But uh, you know, like yeah. you're 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 in a very pretty position. We 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 see them more and more um, that developers. Um, having the bargaining power for many years until they also see what is happening in the market. And we see that they are contracting further and further ahead. They want to secure their capacity. I mean, guys like um, yeah, uh, Equinor or Ørsted, or they are all around in the world. They are in the Baltics, they are in the UK, they are in the US, they are in Asia. And they want to commit the vessel as soon as possible because, because they feel that that is the most, one of the most critical factors. They have the ter signed the TSA or the turbine supplier agreement with uh, GE, Vestas, or, or, or Siemens, but they, want, they need somebody to put that up, and, and they are knocking on our door basically to, yeah, to ask um, if we have that vessel available and, 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 and the market terms for, for, for that vessel. If I could add as well, I mean, it's a very important topic, right? Um, so 2030 is still a ways away. Yeah. Uh, you could get delivery of a vessel probably first half of 2026 at this point, right? Um, so th th there's still opportunities for it. And so what we do see as well is that the big developers are awarding um, basically contracts for new builds, right? So like Adler, which is one of the other peer plays in the space, they've, they've done that, right? They, 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 Erstead basically signed them up in new build against the contract. Um, that's historically not been the case because these vessels are um, they're con for construction projects, right? So like unless you have a huge sort of 
uh, portfolio of construction projects, and you know each construction project is happening in a different place on the seafloor, in a different country, in a different time. Like it's sort of hard to to build out long-term contracts for WHIVs because the specs have to be designed for a specific place, seabed conditions, a specific turbine model that you're putting in, right? So it's not fungible in the sense of tankers or bulkers or even containers. Um, and so we don't see a lot of long-term contracts, usually a year or two or three. But now I think that the portfolios are getting bigger for the big developers. Um, they see the challenge that's coming, and we speak to these guys. They, they, they're aware that like this is going to be a problem at some point, and we're seeing some action in terms of uh, you know awarding uh, you know contracts for new builds. So I think it's it's arising in terms of people's uh, consciousness, but you know it's still it's still a couple of years away, right? So it's kind of like um, you know. Uh, We'll cross that bridge when they get there. Uh, but, that's but, the attitude. but the developers are also extremely project by project thinking because in every wind farm they have, they all uh, they always bring along a partner. So contracting uh, or contracting or making available the pipelines throughout, let's say, let's say three, four, five years of installation pipeline uh, on four or five projects with different partners in each project. That's what the, the developers claim is extremely, extremely difficult. And that's why, and they have, and they have this, these, these are more often state-owned or partly state-owned companies, so they have their tendering process, they have this rich procurement process. So sometimes they have a very hard thinking differently about things than, than, than you and me. <laughs> Yeah. Um, are there any, I guess, short shortages that you're contemplating in terms of the U.S., the first few projects um, to come online and, and kind of bigger picture, anything that, you know, you kind of see, uh, given the considerations of the Jones Act and, 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 and how that market develops uh, here over the next few years? I think uh, there are... Uh in terms of Jones Act, I don't. Uh, I, I really think that uh, or see that that is strengthening. I mean, the, the last uh, the last this administration has done is basically to say that every international vessel coming into U.S. Uh, continental shelf either should have a crew by the flag state or U.S. crew. Um, so. With that in mind, uh, we have vessels, uh, our vessels are flying Marshall Island fly, flag. I, I worked in a company which had Maltese flag, and I can tell you Mal neither Malta or Marshall Island have, have these kind of uh, crew members. And then you have the installation technicians. They are on board these vessels working, so if the installation technicians also need to be U.S. flagged or, or U U.S. Um, citizens or flag state um, citizens, then that will also be a huge bottleneck. Um, but, but creating this pipeline, as, as James alluded to, and, and it's extremely difficult because the, the procurement process, the permitting process, and the, it's not just here in the U.S., but it's, it's all over. So they, normally the, the developers would like to enter in what they would call a preferred supplier agreement. They nominate a, a supplier of a wind turbine installation vessel. But it's only one year after that then, then they, uh, they make a, a formal FID. So, uh, so the, and, and that time from them, them making an FID until that vessel is going to be constructed 
versus the, the time it actually takes to construct that vessel. That, that's not aligned. So we would never ever build a vessel at $550 million based upon the preferred supplier agreement because that's not bankable. So, but, but the Jones Act is here to stay and I think that that's, that's how we need to, to look upon it. But, but then again, for us, I mean, we, we see the U.S. as a very prosperous market. Uh, but again, our, the irony of it is that the more international vessels that are going into the U.S., the, 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 the tighter the market will be, right? So we actually don't need to do anything in terms of the tightness. But we do see U.S. as an extremely important and exciting market to be in. So we are, yeah, we, we, are, we, we want to try to achieve that. I, I could add one more thing to that. It's just that um, I think the concept of a new Jones Act, WTIV, is dead. Uh, so we have one that these guys are working with and, and supervising, but I think it's also the process that they went through shows how painful it is to try to get that done, and it's just so expensive uh, compared to what an international vessel is. But now we see players like Maersk, for example, has gotten, what, four years of contract backlog. Um, in the U.S. market, you're applying different techniques where instead of the vessel just being a sort of being both a transport and an installation vessel, it basically just becomes an installation vessel. It has a sort of deck that sinks, a barge comes in, it brings it up to the top, and then you move the turbine onto the vessel. So we're seeing some new technical solutions, but I would say, looking at all the markets around the world, the U.S. has the biggest challenges with supply chain, largely due to the Jones Act, but that's not the only one. It's just, it, we're trying to go 30 gigawatts and it, from nothing today, six, seven, eight turbines, and uh, you just you just don't have a supply chain here. But it'll figure it out. U.S. is obviously a, put your minds to it, it'll get it done. And there's 120 million people on the East, East Coast. Uh, it's a massive market. There's no room for massive onshore wind farms and solar farms. But what do we have? We've got a lot of, we've got a lot of shallow waters. We've got a lot of wind. And uh, so offshore wind is going to be a thing that makes sense, um, but it's, it's going to be some, some, some trouble with the, the supply chain in the first few years, but we'll figure it out and get it done. Uh, there have been uh, some high-profile losses associated with some of the installations, either with the cables or I believe in Taiwan, uh, with the contractor was on the hook. Plus, scholars came out recently publicly and said that the risk profile was disproportionate for the contractors as opposed to the, the very large developers sponsoring these projects. Can you comment a bit on what your risk profile is when you sign up to install 100 uh, turbines, for example? Yeah, I can comment on that. I would say that there are things we do and there are things we don't uh, do. So we have a, we have an extremely low risk profile. We don't we we we. Um, if you look at our customer base, uh, all of the so-called EPCI contractors, they are on our customer uh, list. We work for the EPCI contractors, so we, know, we, we, we never ever take uh, weather risk. Uh, we don't take upon full contract or TNI at, uh, or EPCI contracts. So we, we and, but the, as you say, the developers um, are trying to are trying to push down their risk into uh, downwards in the supply chain, but we are not doing that. We are we are chartering out our vessels on a time charter basis, and that's it. With with some engineering services, and because there are a lot of technical stuff that needs to go with this vessel in terms of 
soil. Uh, I mean, we have a project now in Taiwan where we're penetrating 40 meters down in the seabed. Uh, there are liquefaction risks, there are earthquake risks, so we need to do those installations in, in, in certain modes. So then there goes along a little engineering with it, but that's not our responsibility. You know. Thank you very much. Thank you.